Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is August 24, 2018, and my guest is Paul Bloom, the Brooks and Suzanne Reagan Professor of Psychology and Cognitive Science at Yale University. This is Paul's second Econ Talk appearance in February of 2017. He talked about his book, Against Empathy. Today, our topic is cruelty. And I want to say up front that anyone listening with young children may want to screen this episode in advance as we are likely to discuss some disturbing behavior. Paul, welcome back to Econ Talk. Thanks so much for having me back. So this conversation is going to be based on three essays you've written, one in the New York Times with Sam Harris, one in the Times with Yale graduate student Matthew Jordan, and one you wrote in The New Yorker. Uh, We'll link to all of them. I want to start with the piece in The New Yorker. Uh, You're reacting in that piece to a a very standard argument that human cruelty is driven by dehumanization, that we see the people that we oppress often as less than human, as animals. How's that argument go? Flesh it out. So it's not a bad argument. I think it's an argument that's that's right in many cases. An argument is that some of the worst things we do to other people are because we don't think of them as people. We dehumanize them. We think of them as animals or as uh, machines or as material objects, but we, we strip away their humanity. And once we do so, um, it, it licenses us to do all sorts of terrible things to them. If I think of you as a person... I can't, you know, then it's morally wrong for me to, to take away your property or to kill you because you get in my way. But if you are a rat or a vermin or a cockroach, then it's totally fine. And so a, a lot of really smart scholars, uh, humanists, uh, social scientists, have, have argued that dehumanization is one of the causes, the big causes of evil and cruelty in the world. And my article in The New Yorker was looking at this critically you know, talking about it, it, looking at the arguments in favor, but also pointing out that this may not be entirely right, that there's a lot more going on. Yeah, you know, one thing I want to want to add is that over time we've gotten more respectful, I, I think accurately, but, you know, there's no way of knowing for sure, of the consciousness and worthiness of animal life. <laughs> there's a certain irony here that even the whole idea of dehumanization is somewhat uh, – less compelling because a lot of people think we should treat animals as at least as well as humans. So there's all sorts of subtleties here. We uh, we got a puppy, um, not somewhat against my will, but we have a puppy nonetheless. <laughs> and we were playing with the puppy last night and, you know, we were having a great time and the puppy is not even close to human, but I would never hurt it or harm it. That sounds horrible. In fact, I think we are, we are harsher towards people who harm innocent animals and those who harm people. And so, um, and so, so, even on the outset, the idea that once you don't think of somebody as human, all the moral rules go away uh, has, has its difficulties. You're right. But you make it an, uh, a, a deeper point. So what was your other criticism or main criticism of this dehumanization theory? So I'm drawing on the work here of a lot of people, um, particularly the, the philosopher uh, Kwame Anthony Appiah and the philosopher Kate Mann. And in different ways, they both make the following argument, which is that if you look at the actual atrocities people do to each other, the, the Holocaust and slavery and misogynistic violence, 
you don't necessarily see dehumanization in any sense of the term. Rather, what you see is a full recognition of the humanity of other people. So, um, so Appiah points out that, uh, you know, in genocide in, in say, um, uh, Germany in World War II, there were all sorts of humiliations and degradations done towards the Jews. And it's hard to make sense of this if you said the Germans didn't think of the Jews as people. Rather, they thought of them as people, and they wanted them to suffer as people. They felt that they were uh, morally tainted as people. They recognized their humanity and hated it. And, um, incredibly deep is, inside. You know, just and, very and, depressing, yeah. but incredibly deep. Yeah. That's right. And, and, and others have made it as well. There, there's a, a scholar of the Holocaust who I quote who says, you know, you, you might think what happened in these death camps as dehumanization. Some of it was. But some of it is also just a desire to dominate, to degrade, to humiliate. And you don't do that with, with creatures you don't view of as fellow people. And, and Kate Mann in this, in this wonderful, I think a really wonderful, very powerful book called Down Girl makes a similar argument about misogyny and misogynistic violence. So, so she says, you know, it's a standard view in a lot of feminist philosophy is that men objectify women. Men think of women as mere things. This is a common analysis of pornography, say. But she takes a lot of case studies and, and, and argues, I think, convincingly that when men act really badly towards women, often it's because men expect things from women. Men feel cheated. They feel disrespected. And these are attitudes you have towards other people, not not towards animals. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a great point. I think I I think there's probably a distinction to be made between people on the ground working in um, in concentration camps in Nazi Germany, guards in in the Gulag in Soviet Russia, and their job was probably easier if they thought of their charges as less than human. Yes. Uh, the, the tattoos of numbers on the arms of Jews is, is it just an obvious example. The, uh, the relentless cruelties of prison life, the pettiness and the, um, the suffering that's in, in, imposed on people, I think, probably at some point allows the people running the system on the ground to be inured to the humanity of the people they're working with. And, you know, the flip side of this, of course, is that a doctor has to somehow objectify a human being yeah. uh, at times and should um, to do the job correctly, a surgeon, um, a, a doctor giving advice to a, to a family. So th there's something understandable about that, um, certainly, and in, in laudable about it in, in situations of compassion and kindness. In the case of cruelty, it's unbearable. Um, but I would think that the the point you're making about that it's, it's their explicit humanity that they want to destroy is certainly coming from the architects. Um, yeah. And somewhat on the ground as well, you know, the, the, the petty humiliation that you talk about and the pleasure that people get from that. Um, now, the, the, so, so, look, let me just get, because you, you're raising so many, so many things there. Um, look, I, I agree. I think a lot of the stuff on the ground, as it were, really is dehumanization. They're, these these are, are often the people who do the most terrible things you know, have no wish, have no animus to harm other people. So they just tell themselves, these are not people. And that just makes it go easier. Yeah. Um, I have a feeling that, that, that even in our modern world, a lot of military action, which is done at a distance, yep. 
isn't done because it's, you know, I'm going to take my vengeance and he's, you know, I'm going to make these people suffer. Rather, it's just that I'm going to, I'm going to just think of these, I'm going to code them as combatants and that's all I'm going to think of. Them. Yeah, I'm playing I'm a video game. Them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and so I, I think you get both. So, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of um, historians of the Holocaust and historians of, of massacres and genocide more generally who point out a lot of people really enjoy this stuff. Uh, you know, books like uh, Hitler's Willing Executioners and Ordinary Men yep. uh, sort of, I think, put put aside the myth that all of the villains in the Holocaust were these, you know, people, were these kind people who just decided who had to be obedient. Yeah, just, yeah, just following orders. That's automatons, right. Or they have a German culture of, of respect that's for authority. Right. And That's right. There's, well, enough, you- there's enough stories of people who went above and beyond orders um, and took pleasure in it. And I, and I don't think, and I think probably some proportion are actually honest to God sadists or psychopaths. But I think a lot of people who do terrible things say, well, these people have coming to them. Yeah. Well, and also I think, we'll come to this in a minute, but I think, I say this with some unease, but I think all of us have a little sadist in us. Or some of, some, many of us do. I would, I would, I think I'd say all of us. Not my mom, but. Uh, <laughs> Not your mom. No, who's Not a, your who's mom. A, just. Article, but um, uh, it reminds me also of the recent, somewhat recent episode we did with uh, on Econ Talk with Mike Munger on slavery and the eagerness in the Americas and um, how eager slave owners were to perceive Africans as inferior and as to justify what they were doing as compassionate, not just, yeah. well, it's okay, I'm cruel to them. It's more like I'm doing them a service because they can't run their own lives. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole literature on this written by people trying to justify themselves. They say, what do you treat more, more, what do you treat better? Do you treat something you rent better or something you own better? Certainly, if you own something, you treat it better, you take care of it. Yeah. And that's, the, that's why the relationship between a master and a slave is a moral one. And, you know, these people are, are, are working very hard to, to frame what they're doing as morally good. Yeah, I'll never, I'll never forget the quote I heard from David Henderson. I, I think it's a um, it's from a a transcript, and I don't know if it's literally true, but it, it's good enough. Uh, whether it's true or not, it could be apocryphal. But it's the runaway slave caught, and now before a judge, and the judge is saying, "Well, how you know how'd your master treat you?" and explains he had a good he had food, he had a bed, and um, and the judge said, "Well, it doesn't sound so bad." And the slave says, well, you know, there's an opening if, if you're interested. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's so easy to strip away, especially the intangible parts of this. And we're, you know, we're doing a book club uh, on uh, Econ Talk on Solzhenitsyn's In the First Circle. Yeah. And the relentless, petty humiliation of, our, of one's humanity in that setting of the prison camp, even in a nice camp in quotes, which is what Solzhenitsyn was in and what she writes about in that book is it's so what, what the irony of our conversation is it's, it is dehumanizing. The treatment is dehumanizing. Yes. Yes. I, at your point is, is that the, it's not the dehumanizing that, that allows the treatment. That's right. I'm more interested in what goes on in people's heads when they do cruel things. In some sense, this is obviously all dehumanizing, but I'm very interested in the claim that when we are cruel to others, it's because we stripped them of their humanity and don't think of them as people. And, you know, just to go back to your, your bigger point you made, 
Um, I guess what I try to argue in a New York article is it's more complicated in two ways. So in one way, it's not the case that if I recognize your humanity, all of a sudden I'll be kind to you. Maybe if I recognize your humanity, I will despise you. I will, will envy you. I will want to dominate you, which yeah. gets to say this in part. So it, it's a mixed bag. Recognizing other people as people by no means uh, makes us kind. And then the flip side, which you mentioned briefly, which always fascinated me, is that treating you not as a human also isn't necessarily a bad thing. Uh, a surgeon, uh, you know, there's a wonderful phrase by Atul Gawande, um, a surgeon treats, uh, treats his or her patient as a problem to be solved. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a utilitarian philosopher goes around to make the world a better place, but doesn't actually think of each person as a person, understands they are people. But when you do the math and say, well, this will save 100 people and this will save 200 people, so we'll save 200 people, you really are thinking of things in mathematical terms. But in the same time, you could be making the world a much better place. Yeah, I, I guess my natural thought there is that there's so many things that don't go into the math. Uh, that um, that are hard to take account of. It's one of the problems I have with utilitarianism, but it's not the only one. So there, there are there. This is is a standard complaint about the utilitarian. A, a modern one, I think, is that the utilitarian is cold blooded and and doesn't understand the specialness, the distinctness of individuals. But sometimes I think in the real world, it it is um, it, it 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 it's it's a feature, not a bug. Um, I think that uh, often our very worst decisions are made because we very much take into account individual cases and um, and we are moved by them. Say, I don't know, the murder of somebody by an immigrant, uh, a gun death, uh, a, a sexual assault. And, and our feelings about the particular individuals there, which will vary from person to person, will often distort policies in all sorts of crazy ways. Whatever you'd say about policymaking in our time by our government, I don't think it's too utilitarian. Well, that's a good point. Uh, and it comes back to your, your book against empathy. It, it, and I encourage, does, yes. encourage listeners to go back and read the, to read that book and to listen to our earlier conversation. And I, I'm, very, uh, I'm very sympathetic to the point because, you know, case by case, which is, has an appeal. We'll just go case by case. Uh, is often fraught with all kinds of problems. Uh, you know, at the personal level, it's, well, I'll just see if this potato chip is worth having. Uh, yes. It always is. <laughs> one, yes. Just one. Um, yes. And in the, you know, in the, in the policy arena, it's negotiating with hostage, you know, someone holding a hostage, you know, having a, having a rule that we do not negotiate with host- people who take hostages is a very powerful rule that you want to break every time when the family is crying and, but if you look ahead to the consequences, you might decide that it's better to suffer the consequences now to prevent further harm in the future. And I think that's a, I think that's an incredibly important point. I think so too. I I, I recently watched the most recent Mission Impossible movie, Fallout. Yeah, it was, it was a good movie. The, the first half I thought was was great, but on not one, not two, but three occasions, somebody says, "Spoiler alert! Oh, hang on, any spoiler? Spoiler alert! But this will not harm. This will not harm me. No, <laughs> no more than what you've seen in the trailer." Um, says to the main character, Ethan Hunt, the Tom Cruise character, "You are a great person, and you are a great person because you believe that the life of one person yes. matters more than the life of a million. And I'm there, like saying, "Hey, I want to rebut." <laughs> yeah, no, that that isn't a, a good minute thing. here. <laughs> you know, the movie is orchestrated that. You know, 
favoring the one over the million works out because it's a movie. Trick, but, yeah. But it's but it, it's actually it's it's a horrific policy. Yeah, I, it's interesting. I, as an economist, there's many movies I can't enjoy um, because they bother me for those kind of reasons, and I, that bothered me too. I knew I was being manipulated there. I was supposed to think that Cruz was was uh, honorable yes. for his putting uh, an actual human life first, but actually he's endangering many, many more. And there is. It's actually the only thoughtful thing in the whole movie. <laughs> the movie is an extended chase scene. Uh, but yes. that tension over uh, the life in your own hands that's visible and tangible versus longer term uh, costs. They beat it to death. I just want to say yes, I, I, was, I, <laughs> I was very disappointed in the movie. And I, I, I was um, – but that's neither here nor there. Um, but that's an excellent point. It's really exactly right. A, a colleague of mine, Molly Crockett, has just published a paper with, with several other people – Supporting the idea, which which I think you and I know intuitively, that people like um, deontologists. They like people who who have moral rules. They like people who favor their friends and their family, and they have little patience for utilitarians, even for effective altruists. Um, I think that, I, and and I think there's there's interesting reasons why we are constituted that way. But um, but the, the utilitarian has few friends. <laughs> And, and and I got to say, this is a problem with your discipline, which very much leans utilitarian. Yeah, it's true. Well, well some of us deserve fewer friends, uh, <laughs> perhaps. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna um, I'm gonna make an observation here to get your reaction. It's not really the point of your essay, but uh, I find it interesting how hard it is for people to accept the possibility that people enjoy being cruel. Yeah. You know, you had um, you had Jordan Peterson on your show. Yep. And um, once, twice, once, once. Okay. I, so I, far. I, and, and and I listen. You know, and I um I disagree with Jordan Peterson. Uh, I haven't met him. I disagree with him about a lot of things. But there's one thing he says which I think is true and important and doesn't get said enough. Which is he talks about the desire for power and domination. And and he talks coherently, but says, look, people. Get a pleasure and a satisfaction about you know dominating others, and it's not sadism strictly speaking. I think no. what it is is that we're we're hierarchical creatures, yep. and um, and so and we want to be on top. And there's all sorts of ways being, of being on top. There's to be respected and to be admired, but failing that, terrifying somebody and making them fall you know before you, is is a go to some some individuals. Uh, uh, you know, use. You know, while we're talking about movies, I just I recently saw Richard Curtis interviewed. It's going around on Twitter. This clip. Uh, he's the director of Love Actually, which, for better or for worse, is one of my top ten movies for watchability. I love that movie. Uh, well, you are a contrarian. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, I'm not, but among our friends, yeah, and because uh, a lot of people seem to like it. But he he makes sentimental movies. And he defends it, saying he thinks people are basically good. He says, if you make a movie about a sadist who uh, deserts from the army and and violates a woman who's pregnant, a nurse, that that's gritty realism. My movie about people falling in love is considered sappy and sentimental. But he said there are a million people falling in love in England right now, and uh, that's real life. He's trying to defend this idea that people are basically good, and I – Although I like the movie and I like to think personally, I do occasionally like to believe that people are basically good. I don't 
necessarily think that's the best way to to approach life, but it's a good way to approach your friends uh, for sure. Yeah, and and um, I think I think people are basically complicated. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm, I'm 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 a developmental psychologist, and sometimes I get the question, you know, are babies innately good or innately bad? And I always answer yes. It's, it's just answer. you know we 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 have both appetites, and I think part of the badness for all of us, maybe except for your mother, is mm-hmm. is a desire to, to to be on top, to dominate, or at least not even at least not to be on the bottom, and. And, you know, that doesn't really necessarily mean I have to round up a bunch of people and, and put them in a camp and sit in a guard tower and, and, and take pot shots at them. But, but the appetite that makes us do that is, I think, a sort of grotesque and exaggerated form of an appetite that exists in all of us. Yeah, it's related to the Adam Smith point about, you know, which listeners know well, man naturally desires not only to be loved, but to be lovely. And he takes the yes. to be loved part as a given, not not only to be. Of course, we want to be loved. Of course, we want to be paid attention to. Of course, we want to be respected, admired, honored. And when we don't receive that, uh, we don't take it so well. And I, I, it's just something I'm increasingly aware of, I, something that economists have zero um, insight into after Adam Smith, unfortunately, or not. But that's, I think, the reality. And it's a big part of, of human life. It's a big part of work. <laughs> it's something uh, I think economists have ignored which is too bad. It is. Uh, Tom Tyler, a, a colleague of mine at Yale Law School, you know, has a lot of evidence that what matters to people the most in their workplace is that is the feeling of being respected, and and you know, being respected, being being treated as a serious individual, you know, worthy worthy of, a creature of dignity, mm-hmm. is, is worth a lot of money. Yeah, it, it's it's um, and and it's also I think the right thing to do. And but but I think that this desire actually can bleed into the almost sadism we're talking about uh, earlier. I was having a, an argument uh, with my family, people around the room who I love the most in the world, but I wasn't. I feel like I wasn't being heard. They were, you know, there was an argument, going and I, I couldn't get my, my get the words, and I wasn't being heard, and I felt this frustration. And you know, and and it's very human to say, no, let me speak. You listen to me. You listen to me, you respect my views. And it's not the prettiest trait. So why is it that in a faculty meeting where you have something deep and profound to say, Paul, which I'm sure is all the time, but in a particular case where you feel you mm-hmm. actually have something important to contribute and you can't get a word in and your insight's lost and you know people didn't, re- didn't give you a chance to get your insight across, you'll get a little bit annoyed. But with your family who you love – yeah. It can be infuriating. Why? What's the difference there? Shouldn't it be the? It should be the other way around. It's like I love these people. I'm not going to get mad at them. Why do we care more in those sometimes in those settings? So that gets back to the whole issue of humanization and treating people as as people, and and um, and it connects to the misogyny work of Kate Mann. And the answer is, I like my fellow faculty members. Many of them are good friends, but I love my family. <laughs> And because I love my family, their rejection, their failure to take me seriously, their failure to listen to my my seven points about why uh, Trump will not be reelected, <laughs> and to fully appreciate it, deep insights, was, you know, was, and you know, was really bothered me. Yeah. Well, you know, my colleagues, my colleagues listening to my 
my plan to recruit 10 graduate students to work with me. Ah, no, <laughs> screw that. And of course, this is, this is reflected, you know, more seriously. In fact, I'm far more likely to kill my family. Yeah, it's horrifying, isn't it? Yeah, because and, and, and this is the thing. This is how I end the New Yorker article, and which is that there's, there's this view we have that if only we were to that the dehumanization view is a very optimistic view because it says that so much of the badness that we do is based on a mistake. I'm just not recognizing humanity. You just need re-educating. You just yes, need a sensitivity session. I need a sensitivity session. I need to see some slides. I need to talk to them. Yeah, and I once to you talk to them, you won't hate them anymore. Once I talk to them, it'll all be worked out. And I think, I think that's one of the biggest mistakes we make about morality. I think that the, the reality is that fully appreciating someone's humanity opens up so many positive things. It, you can't be human without it. You can't have a decent relationship. It, it's the foundation of love and friendship, but it carries with it so many terrible risks. Um, really loving somebody, really knowing somebody opens up the possibility for love, but it also opens up the possibility for hatred. So unintuitive, but it's so true. Talk about that some more. Um, so I like um, I, I like Mann's analysis here, and um, and she talks about um, she gives an example of, of of Elliot Rogers. So Elliot Rogers is this kid in California. He left a video describing his motivations, and he went on a shooting spree and killed many people. And he was in some way the first incel. He argued that uh, he, he claimed that he was killing people not because he didn't see them as people, but because um, they rejected him. Got a grievance. He had a grievance. He had a grievance. That's an, that's a lovely term, grievance. You don't have a grievance against a dog or a rock. You have a grievance against a person. Um, and he had he had grievances against the beautiful women who he said scorned him and wouldn't sleep with him. He had a grievance against uh, I think they call him Chaz. These handsome young men who were romancing and having sex with these beautiful young women. And he felt left out. He felt, and, and there's this profound resentment. There's this profound feeling of grievance. And I think that sort of instance captures the psychology of cruelty maybe better than the picture, which sometimes is true, of somebody gunning down a bunch of people because he thinks they're monkeys. Yeah. I keep thinking about the fact that you know, the flip side of this, and I, I write about this in my Adam Smith book, if I'm having a um, an argument with a family member and my I'm just really frustrated and, and angry, which I hope doesn't happen very often, but it does happen, and I get a phone call, and for reasons not worth going into, I have to take it. Yeah. Somehow I go, oh, hello. I say hello. I don't say, yes. I don't say what do you want? I just say hello because I can turn that off when I want to, and yet I can't turn it off sometimes in the middle of that argument, which is strange. And I think part of what's going on there is the love-hate thing is that I I want your respect, Paul, right? Because mm-hmm. I think you're a smart person and you're achieve, you have achievements, and I, it would make me happy if you walked away from this interview telling your friends – Boy, that was a great experience. Econ Talk's a great program, blah, 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 right? It's going to make me feel good. You know, I'm not going to – you can send me a video, by the way, if you want. But uh, just <laughs> – you, you know this happened after our last Of course it did. So, uh, yeah, so, for so, hours. So, and I so, really appreciate it. So now it. I don't know whether there might be diminishing returns. Yeah, that's a good point. But, but I do, in the abstract, okay. do like your respect. But my wife's respect, that matters a lot more to me. 
right? And so uh, it's not, even though I can tell myself, well, of course she respects me. She's my wife. Uh, I think in the day-to-day tension we have with the people closest to us, uh, that can be a challenge. We, we, we expect so much more of the people around us. And the, the flip side of that, which drives me, which also drives me crazy, is I can be disrespectful to my family. I yes. can I, I use the example of taking a phone call. That'd be one example. I would never do that in the middle of an argument with you in in person. Uh, but I, I can disrespect them and, and rationalize them and say, well, they're my family. They love me anyway. I don't have yeah. to really treat them that well all the time. When it really to me, morally, it should go the opposite. I should put them on a pedestal constantly. Yeah. Yeah. There's um of all things, I'm remembering a story I heard from a rabbi once, and it's about this guy and his wife is at a hotel, and his wife is fumbling to get something out of out of her bag because he needed the front desk. And the guy, and they've been married for thirty years. The guy looks at the at the guy behind the desk and rolls his eyes. Yeah. And the point of the story is, it's a you're fantastic story. <laughs> you know, you're betraying the, how bad that is. Yeah. And and you know, it's the sort of thing I could see myself doing. I can see it, and but but you know, you're betraying somebody you love to a stranger, yeah. showing his dominance. But that's that's part of the package, you know. There's there's this study, and I don't know if this is true. This was from a long time ago. Sort of thing you say in intro, like, but it it rings true. It was from a uh, God, uh, um, I forget the word. It was, it was done by a, a marriage expert, and they they took videotapes of couples interacting, and they wanted to predict what aspects of interactions predicted that their relationship would break up. And it turned out in this story that it wasn't whether or not they were quiet or noisy, not even whether they screamed at each other and fought. It was whether they showed contempt for each other. Yeah, that's a great, great point. Con- con- contempt, contempt is is like the relationship killer. It it, it means you know you are you are no longer you know <laughs> we've gone beyond grievances here. Well, today contempt's the you could argue contempt's the opposite of respect. And yes. without that, you really you can't have a marriage. In my view, a good marriage you can't have a good friendship. Um, but going back to the, it's bring us full circle, and I want to shift gears at this point. But going back to the hotel front desk story, when you roll your eyes with a stranger or a friend over your spouse's behavior, you're, that is the ultimate dehumanization of your spouse. That's what you're, you're, what you're saying is, uh, I'm going to use this moment of frailty. Of human imperfection, that that say my spouse is disorganized, yeah. and I'm going to use it as a source of camaraderie and, and and humor with you, the stranger. I'm going to treat it like a clip from a movie that that we might both react to. It just it's bad idea. <laughs> yeah, and, and and that brings up something which I, I I don't think I did. I gave enough time and respect to in the New York article, which is. You know, human treating somebody as a person has all sorts of moral risks, but there's dehumanization of that sort in everyday life, and and it could really be ugly, and it could be a relationship killer. And maybe one way of looking at the contempt finding, if it's true, is that you, you don't even think of the person as as worth being as 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 if you that contempt is a dehumanizing emotion, and that's fatal for a relationship. And I just want to close with a really sappy story. Um, which I think I try to think of. I don't think about it often enough, but it's a it's, an, it's either a cartoon or a video where it shows a person going through their day, and each of the people that that the main character encounters, instead of seeing them as human beings, they're they're just the thing that they're doing. So the 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 janitor is just a broom, physically mm-hmm. a broom, or has a broom for a head while they're sweeping yeah. up, and the 
bus driver is a, a steering wheel rather than a, an actual human being. And it, 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 it's easy to point that out, that that's often the way we treat folks who help us in our lives that way. Uh, I think it's an interesting challenge about how to overcome that. I, I try to say thank you. I, I walked in the mall one Sunday and to do an errand, and there was a woman pulling together some garbage bags from the outside trash can. And I just said that. I smiled at her and said thank you. Made me feel good, by the way. Uh, repeating yeah. it, of, of course, didn't earn your respect, Paul. But um, uh, but more seriously, you know, I thought about that. That's a minimal thing to do as a – but maybe she thought I'm crazy. Like, why is he thanking me? But for me, it's it's a way to say I don't see you as a robot who happens to pick up trash. I see you as a fellow human being who's doing something that makes my life a little bit better. It's It's a struggle because – yeah, um, this this anthropologist Fisk talks about these different levels in which we interact with each other, and there's a market level where you know you pay your money, you get your product, and 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 things go smoothly, and it's it's based on autonomy and mutual consent. But then there's also the friendship model. You know, if I um if 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 I go to your house and you make me a nice meal, I don't give you money afterwards. That would be disrespectful. We got to um, suggest I have the wrong model. Then in so much of our life, the problem is you have to you're dealing with people and you have to navigate both, and it's very difficult. Um, it, it took me a long time. At, at some point in our lives, my wife and I got somebody to clean our house um, because we had a very messy house and we had some affordable income, and and we, we viewed as somebody the person who cleans our house benefits from it. But it felt so weird having somebody walking around my house picking up my stuff. Yeah, and I- yeah. Yeah, no, it's a strange thing, right? And they're very glad to have that <laughs> that money that you pay them for picking up your right. stuff. You know, my my view on that, I think I've talked about on the program before, is you know when my kids would throw up, uh, I would not say, "Well, the cleaning lady's coming tomorrow or tonight or in an hour. I'll just let leave it for them because that's what we pay them for, isn't it?" And the answer is not really. Um, that's I got to clean that up. So I, I think there are cultural rules about what's considered acceptable and. Um, so it's a very interesting it's a very interesting question when there's a large gap. It's it's one of the places where I think inequality is real. You know, yes. when I invite a uh, person into my house to clean my house who whose life is not the same as mine and she is going to be in my space for two hours with her crew or an hour and that's a little bit weird. Her car is nicer than mine, it makes me happy, but <laughs> oh, and I always like good. to point that out. But um I say that actually. I, it's not really a joke. My, the point of that is, is, I think, is real. That it's true that I have certain things she doesn't have. My house is probably bigger than hers, but there are many things she has that are not so bad. And and so it, you have it depends where you are, what country you're in, what culture yes. you're in, what the pro- future holds. It, it's a little bit complicated. Yes, the, the the morality of it, the psychology of it. I think this is a case where. Um, Maybe ethical philosophers have let us down because I don't see any good guidelines on how how are we to properly deal with each other in these market circumstances, and it, it is often complicated and troubling, and often a source it's often a source of embarrassment and humor um, because it's such a difficult, troubling situation. Um, and obviously, there are gender and racial issues yeah, that arise here for sure with class and income. Yes, yeah. I, what I do a small step. Is uh, I ask them what kind of music they want, the cleaning crew, 
and um, they're from Central America. They want bachata music, which has its own station on Spotify, and I put it on. I blare it as loud as they want. I don't particularly like it. I've come to like it a little bit now, actually. <laughs> it's, it's growing on me. It's growing on me. It's not my style of music, but it's growing on me. And if I knew what the words were, I'd really like it because I think it's very sentimental. Uh, let's let's shift gears. Um, okay. Let's talk about the Derek Parfit thought experiment that you write about in uh, a different article that we're going to now turn to. What what was that thought experiment? So this was some some work I did with Matt Jordan, this uh, wonderful graduate student at, at Yale. And Parfit is one of my favorite philosophers. A lot of people's favorite philosopher. He passed away. Very recently, very sadly, and this brilliant and very moral person, and he had this experiment, this thought experiment in reasons and persons. He called it the harmless torture. And the idea is, um, I'm going to sort of simplify a little bit, but just as, as to get the form that I remember. But um, but there's somebody who's in a tiny bit of pain, and you could press a switch, and by pressing a switch, you add to their pain. It's electric shock, say, but you add to it so infinitesimally that they don't even notice there's a difference. And you walk around throwing the switch on a thousand people, not affecting anybody. But there's also somebody behind you, and he's also throwing the switch on a thousand people. And there's, say, a thousand people. And as a result of everybody throwing the switch, each individual ends up in terrible agony. So as a sort of group, you have all tortured all these people. But as an individual, you haven't increased the misery of not a, not a single person. Or if you have, you've done it in a very tiny way. And this is sort of one of these odd thought experiments designed to sort of explore utilitarianism and so on. But what was interesting about it is, um, I think w w what Matt and I argued is, it lives itself out now in social media. It's um, in, in that, you know, I get a, a I, somebody says something really bad about me on Facebook. I look at it. Somebody likes it. It's not a big deal. But then in the end of the day, a thousand people have liked it, and I feel crushed. I feel humiliated. And, um, and so, so this is a sort of social mobbing that happens where no – what's interesting about this for us is nobody's doxing anybody. There's no rape threats. There's no death threats. There's just the accumulation of tiny acts that in the end have terrible consequences through our technology. And so we explore that. We talk about um, – this in the context of microaggressions, this writer, Julian Sanchez, makes the point that a lot of small insults, each one very minor, maybe not even a problem, but if you get a lot of them, it could just grind you down. And we take that as a moral issue people should take seriously. I think it's extremely interesting and important. We had an episode with Megan McArdle on Internet Shaming uh, yes. that I thought was really um, – she was fantastic. Uh, and it's – you know, the flip side of that, of course, is that, well, some people deserve their – not you, Paul, of course, um, but some people deserve a comeuppance. And all this is is a, a modern way of, of sending moral signals to people that they've done the wrong thing. So I've, I've heard that. and I don't like I it would, either. <laughs> I, I wouldn't doubt that in some cases, you know, we're really hitting at the right person and maybe the effect will actually be a good one. I just think in the real world, in the cases that I see so often, first, they're always punching down. They're always somebody, some obscure schmo who's done something stupid, who's been caught on the worst 30 seconds of their life. And there it is on a video. Um, so it's often punching down. It's often based on false information. 
Um, just the most recent case, like a week ago, there was some film with some guy catching a baseball. Oh, yeah. It's a fantastic and, example. And he keeps it. He, he takes it. He it. takes it. No, I think he takes it. it he takes it away from a small child, it appears. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Either so, the kid bobbles it and he grabs it or yes. I think that's what happens. That's exactly right. And then so, of course, Twitter goes berserk. Monster. And, and the, the answer is, well, now let's ruin his life. Yeah. He deserves let's it. Ruin his life. Let's make sure he loses his job. He can't live anywhere. Maybe he'll kill himself. And then it turns out like what? Like five minutes later, it's revealed that he had actually he had given like three balls to the kid in front of him. And then later on, he gave it to his wife. Then she gave it to the kid. No, I think she actually what happened is I'm a big baseball fan, Paul. So I was really interested in this. And I also have taken I'm, many of my I'm, children to games and. And I'm very interested in getting a ball. I'm faking all my sports knowledge. Yeah, I can see this. So what actually (laughs) happened is that the clip ends with him seemingly gleefully taking the ball from this little kid. But it turns out he's giving it to another kid uh, who's in a different spot, two doors, two seats over. The kid in front had already gotten either gotten one or gotten two. Which is absurd, but they were sitting near the near the field and had been tossed to them by a player. And I think so. Anyway, so it's a it's a perfect example of you didn't know the whole story. You yes. went down this guy's throat, but but I want to take a different tack on this. The, okay, let's suppose that's where the clip really did end. That's where it should yeah. have ended. He's a, he's a jerk. He, he maybe he never got a ball as a kid himself. Maybe he's just likes baseballs. Maybe he didn't like that kid in front of him. <laughs> maybe he's just selfish. The idea that this somehow is irredeemable, that this deserves, yeah. there's no limit to what punishment this deserves. It's, it's like when, I don't want to pick an example, but there, cause there's so, but there, you know, there's so many where some public figure does something stupid in their yeah. youth, say, and now they're up for this new job as editor of this magazine or star in this movie or, uh, running for office or appointed to this position. And somehow that one mistake is considered Decisive. The idea is that we now know because we've seen this clip or we've read this quote from when the person was 20 years old or five years ago that obviously they're a bad person as if you can just put people in boxes. And I think that's just I think that's that's an evil, evil thing to do to presume that people are either good or bad. And therefore, that's dehumanizing, basically saying this person is irredeemable and they deserve everything that comes down on them. I agree. I agree. You have, you know, there's John Ronson's wonderful book, Got Us All Started, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, where he looks at these cases of people who have been attacked by by mobs and had their lives ruined uh, through social media. And he points out some of them are guilty. Like some of them did do something pretty bad. Bad, yeah. But, But there's no sense of mercy or justice or proportion. And, you know, the legal system has this. Um, Bureaucratic systems have it. You know, if I steal some paper clips from the front office, maybe I get in trouble, but I wouldn't lose my job. Um, but I, but, uh, um, and even informal social systems like families have it. Yep. You know, so if my if my kid bails me bails on me when he's supposed to get together for me for lunch, I'd say, well, that's really rude, and maybe I sulk, and maybe we have some bad harsh words, but I'm not going to take him out of my will. Yeah. I'm not going to lock maybe the a door page. so he can't get back in the house. Maybe a page of it. Not the, not the whole <laughs> thing. He might lose, just, a, lose a couple things, but yeah, he loses a he loses a percentage each yeah. time. He does something bad, but but it's it's proportional and balanced because people live together, and and it makes sense. If you and I are part of the same family, 
we want proportionality because even for just self-interest, one day you'll do something wrong. And, and the problem with social media, I think you're right, even if the person did it, even if all the facts are out there, it's just a mob. And it's just, it's just a mob that, that – and people jumping into the mob because of the pleasure they get. In part, it's a pleasure of punishment. I think it's in part, it's a pleasure of affiliation. Yeah, some signaling going on there big time, I, as you point I, out, I, I think. I've never been part of a group that stoned somebody. But it's not hard for me to see how much fun that must be, to be part of the people throwing the rocks and screaming. The, the feeling of – of course – Justice. Person, dessert, yeah. You know, I've, I, I enjoy the same, maybe I enjoy the same movies as you do. And a lot of these movies kind of pull on our vicarious feelings of justice. Yeah, our desire to do them. How good it is. You know, I don't know if I would be Dirty Harry, but I sure like watching Dirty Harry. You're right. But when you're talking about this internet shaming, but isn't this death by a thousand cuts a good thing? If it were Hitler, wouldn't you be right to let him have it? Yes. But the problem is that when we are infused with moral outrage... Acting as part of a crowd and operating in a virtual world with no fixed system of valuation, law, or justice, all our enemies are Hitler. Yes, and and I've actually seen that literally on on Twitter. I you know I, I've seen people say say, well, you know, I think we should hear this person out, and they say, would you hear out Hitler? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's Hitler. I think is a terrible paradigm for everyday moral judgments and moral moral responses. So so my view is, and and you know, people. I, I've I've had pushback on this. We tried to make our examples both sort of liberal and conservative, because the mob has gone after both. Yeah, the mob has um you know um the mob has gone after people for for you know on on, on all sides of the political spectrum. For sure. Um, so you know it it this is not meant as a critique against speak against marginalized groups speaking out against bad people, but um. But it is, and it's also not not against uh, somebody who I, I said some critical remarks on in my art, in, in our article. Um, said there was something hypocritical about it. You know, Bloom is against public shaming, but there he is criticizing me. But but uh, I'm not against public criticism or debate. No. If you if you you know if you dismantle my arguments over Twitter and everything, that may not be fun for me. But I, that's actually I think a good thing. It's just that if. If if you you know post a funny picture of me you know falling in a puddle of mud, and fifteen thousand people retweet it with the word loser on it, that's a different story. Yeah, just cruelty. It's not yes, cruelty. And there's a. I, I just want to mention that we talk a lot in this program about bootleggers and Baptist theory of regulation, where politicians will invoke uh, high-minded principles. That's the Baptist side, say for not having liquor sales on Sunday, but then they're really also being taking care of their bootlegger friends who make the donations to their campaign on the sly because bootleggers benefit from liquor stores being closed on Sunday. Yes. And I think that's a very important perspective on politics, but it's also a very important perspective on our own humanity. And we will do evil things and just that's the uh, – because we enjoy them. That's the bootlegger side. But we'll yeah. explain that. Well, we're, it's important to shame this loser because you know he's a bad person. So that's the Baptist side. So I feel virtuous. It's not just that I'm cruel to somebody online. I'm going to feel virtuous about it because that's where we're at right now. Right, and that's sort of a theme which pulls together the conversations uh, about the New York article and about this article. What they have in common is that the people who are being cruel um, don't think of themselves as villains. 
they don't even think of themselves as morally neutral. They think of themselves as good people. Crusaders. They're, they're, you know, to to exactly to to um to to strike at somebody who is doing something wrong is easily seen as a good thing. And there's nothing. It's not irrational. Sometimes it is a good thing. Yep. You know, one of the the sort of things. You know, evolutionary psych 101 says the only way we could be good people to each other as, as a society and as a species, the only way goodness could survive is if we have some mechanism in place to punish or shun people who are not good. Otherwise, goodness is a crappy strategy and we'll just fall by the wayside. And this is true, I think, from an evolutionary point of view, but it's also true on a societal point of view, where which is you want there to be cops and for situations that don't demand the level of cops, you want people to be able to say to each other, you know, hey, dude, that was really racist. You shouldn't talk like that. Or, you know, I'm not going to invite you to my parties anymore if you, you know, if you throw up all over the furniture. I think the, the real issue here is the, is the magnitude of the punishment. Exactly. So let's say, let's say that guy really did steal the ball from the kid and, and his wife might look at him and say, that was awful. Now, she's not going to roll her eyes at the, at the guy on the other side of her yeah. husband. But let's say she turns to her husband and says, that's not nice. Well, that's probably an appropriate response. Certainly, right. it's an appropriate response to your child who's kept it, your teenage kid who's taken the ball from the seven-year-old in the front row, row yep. in front of you. But it's not a it's – it's a it's not a um, – it shouldn't get a death sentence. It shouldn't get a um, – get you fired from your job. And And – most people, I think, think, but it's just wrong. So it doesn't matter how big the penalty is. And one of the things I've learned from the Coase theorem, from I hate that mm-hmm. phrase, from Coase's article on social costs, is the idea that it's true that we should punish bad behavior. But if you punish bad behavior too much, there is such a thing. And as a result, you'll change people's incentives to do things that actually are important to do. Like you won't go to baseball games, say. You won't take your yeah. kid to a baseball game because you might get caught on film doing something horrible. And so I yeah. think we really need to work out the norms, not work out, but the norms of, and culture of, of these kind of issues of public clips and shaming and all that. It's going to change. I think various things will respond and and I, I don't know how it's going to turn out, but I, I don't think it's going to be exactly the same way it is right now. That's an optimistic point of view. Exactly. I mean, in some way, in, in some <laughs> way, in our article, we blame technology because normally, you know, if I say to you, oh, "You've been a jerk," well, I'm saying that to you. I'm face to face. I'm saying that to you. I understand the consequences. I understand what I'm doing. But if I tweet that at you anonymously, and, too, and, sometimes. anonymously, and then a thousand other people do it, I'm part of a group my my own intention was never to destroy your life perhaps or i probably don't need to think about it that much but but we are not we are ill-equipped to think about the magnitude of such things and this made me rethink something which i was sort of had was a bit uh skeptical of i i read this article by i said by julius sanchez um, and he talks about in terms of what are now called microaggressions and i used to roll my eyes a little bit about some of this but but it, it's it's not hard to see if you think about it. There's a parallel thing where imagine I say something to you and I'm I'm it's a joke. It's a, maybe it's a remark about something and in itself it's no big deal. And if you don't call me out about it, I'd say I'd say you are so touchy. It is no big deal. But maybe if it's multiplied, maybe if you experience this a hundred times each day, your life becomes unbearable. 
And although I just, I didn't, my own act in and of itself was no big deal. I am part of a general problem that makes you miserable. And so I think we need to respect, we need to respect the fact that often we will feel that we had no bad intentions and we will be right. And yet we can appreciate that our own small acts when accumulated make people's life miserable. And so we should stop these small acts. Yes, the categorical imperative. It's Kant. Yes, right? it is it's exactly saying, right. You should decide, even though your snide remark, cheap shot, raised eyebrow is is not a big deal, you, you should be aware of the fact that if everyone did it, it would be unbearable. And therefore, you shouldn't do it even once. And, and I think people very easily rationalize that. You know, my, my silly example is the people who eat grapes out of the grocery store bags. <laughs> uh, just one. I mean, they and they let yes. you do it because the bag's open. I mean, obviously, they don't mind if you do it. Well, yes. they, they, they don't mind. What they do is they raise the price of grapes to include the fact they have to or they wouldn't make money. Yeah. Right? All of shoplifting is included in the price of the food we eat. So it's true. Any one shoplifter has a trivial effect. But if lots of people start shoplifting, which they do, of course, some there is shoplifting. Yep. Uh, everybody pays a price, and that's stealing <laughs> for obvious reasons. Yep. Um, but anyway, let's, let's uh, turn to the last essay. Yeah which uh, is in many ways the most interesting one, and I hope we can go a little bit over time if you, that works for you. Definitely. Uh, you wrote an essay on Westworld. Uh, we're going to uh, talk a little bit about that program. Uh, talk about the premise of the show and uh, what your observations on it. This is your article with Sam Harris. That's right, and this grew out. I was on, um, uh, no offense, but I was on another podcast, another podcast <laughs> with Sam Harris. What are you thinking? Uh, <laughs> lack of lack of fidelity, um, and we got to talking about Westworld, and the two of us decided we should turn our thoughts into into an article. And so the the premise of Westworld for people who haven't seen it, um, and we wrote it based on season one, which was considerably simpler, I think, um, is that there's an, a futuristic amusement park, which is like the Wild West, with uh, you know with bandits and prostitutes and 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 bartenders. But they're robots. They're humanoid robots, indistinguishable from people. And you, as a vacationer, can go there and interact with them. And you can go, as they say in the, in the show, you could be a white hat and just like have adventures and try to save damsels in distress, or or even just use it as sort of a vacation land or families who go there with children. But you can also go black hat, which means you could rape, you could murder, you could torture these robots. And you're allowed to do this because you're not harming people. And so Sam and I are very interested in the morality of that. And, and so we explore, explore the issue and we make sort of two general points. One point is that we don't know, it's impossible to tell whether or not creatures as sophisticated at, as, as, as depicted in Westworld are sentient. Um, and if they are, and even if there's any risk that they are, such behavior is terribly immoral. A second point is um, that even if they aren't, even if you know they aren't, even if you know they're like toasters, it might be morally corrosive to treat things that are indistinguishable from people in terrible ways. It might bleed over to your interactions with people. That's a speculation, but, but we think it's plausible. And I guess I'll also say just a third point, you know, while, while I'm monopolizing the stage, which is that, um, that it, it is an interesting, a meta point is, it's an interesting way to do philosophy. Philosophers love thought experiments, but 
Westworld is itself a thought experiment. And having the robots played by such brilliant uh, uh, actors um, makes you feel the force of the fact that you shouldn't harm them. If I just told you about it, you might mm. be there. But if you watch the show, you'll see that the people who do terrible things to these robots are doing terrible things. And, it, and, and, and the, the, the TV show makes it clear in a way that other ways of expressing things uh, aren't. And so I have this sort of pet idea that a lot of movies and TV shows, um, the movie Memento being another example, are actually themselves works of philosophy. Well, I saw... I saw episode one of the series. Yeah, and my wife and I, you know, watch the occasional series together. We watch we watch The Crown. Mm-hmm. We watched uh, The Wire to span the entire range of <laughs> degrading, degrading, uh, gritty real realism to um, period pieces of mm-hmm. of termed existence. Um, but I watched. I happened to watch that without her, and she. I re- after watching, I realized it's not for her. She, she really doesn't like violence. Even against, she would be uncomfortable watching those robots getting killed because they bleed. Just in case yes. you haven't seen the show, but in the first episode, uh, I found it so haunting. I, I could not stop thinking about the program, and I, I I may go back and watch the rest of the season and maybe more. But I, I was just overwhelmed by how thought provoking it was. Uh, even just the first episode. And how it jarred me, and how it's an incredibly well-made uh, yeah. show. It's just it's extraordinary. Let's start with the second uh, point you made, and then we'll, I want to come back to the first mm-hmm. a little more length. It's just interesting this idea that it's morally corrosive. That would be the same argument against letting people play video games that are have become increasing, yes. not stopping them, say legally, but not wanting your kids to play them because they become increasingly realistic and. Uh, that perhaps that makes it a little harder to treat human beings well. But it also reminds me of our conversation about animals, right? I think yeah. one of the arguments for treating animals well, even if they are not conscious, is that if you treat animals badly, you might have trouble treating humans well. And I think it's not – they're not unrelated. That would be the claim. I don't know if it's – I hate to find out that's true or not or whether it's just sort of you know empty armchair theorizing. I don't know if it's true either. Kant made the claim about animals because he was – no, maybe either Kant or Descartes. Um, one of them was committed to the views that animals didn't really feel pain, which is an unintuitive view to say the least. But, uh, but then said you shouldn't harm them because it would, it would lead you to, to be cruel to people who definitely do feel pain. Um, and then there's the video game case. So it's it's sort of strange to find myself making this argument for Westworld because I think the video game case, the simply the evidence is tremendously weak. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the idea that that play, my kids would play extremely violent, you know, first person shooter games, um, and I you know I wondered is this going to turn them into into the killers, and you know a it didn't, but b I had enough of understanding of literature. To appreciate, there's no evidence that it does that it has any bad effect. Go the um, other way, right? It's a way to get your aggressions out in a way that's harmless. It could easily be a positive. So you, you, you would tell a catharsis view where it does yeah. go the other way. I, I don't. I, I think that's too much. On the other hand, um, you know, people like Steve Pinker correctly point out that the period in which the games have become more realistic and more violent is the same period in which violence in that age group has dropped a lot. And compassion towards minorities and 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 uh, outgroups has has increased. 
So, you know, if you're gonna if, if you're gonna make a big deal about these correlations, you'd have to be forced to the view that violent video games make us much nicer. Yeah, I think that's ridiculous. But so, yeah, but so I think FYI, it's but yeah, so, <laughs> the correlation is so, not causation, and I'm exactly, not I'm not exactly. sure how much nicer we are to people really, and a lot of the darker sides of us are just bubbling. And I like to say the you know the the veneer of civilization is thin. I don't know. That's interesting. I mean, that's that's sort of. I'll, I'll finish the thought, which is that um, that I do, however, think that that actually raping somebody or beating up somebody or torturing somebody to death in a situation where they're in materially indistinguishable from a person will lower your inhibitions towards doing it again towards real people. Um, and I don't have empirical evidence for that. But um, but I think it's I think it's a reasonable worry to have. Yeah, I I, I feel that way. I, I, I again one of the there's a cheap trick at the heart of Westworld, which is that they're not actual robots. <laughs> yes, <laughs> right. Yes. they're actually people playing robots in a yes. way that makes them semi very close to human, but not quite. So, and of course, that line you don't have to be a it's not a spoiler alert that that's going to get blurred over time in the series. Yeah. It's what makes it so interesting. And um, but I, but it's but it but it illustrates what it would be like to have humanoid robots, which is they'd be indistinguishable from actors playing robots. Yeah. So if they got yeah, as they as the technology advances, and it, it's an interesting thing. We we tend to make our robots look like humans. Yes, in a generic sense, but not so much in a uh, literal sense. And it'll be interesting to see how that evolves as the uh, as the technology gets better. Right. I, I wonder, for reasons connected to what we were talking about before, regarding our relationships to those who serve us, that there will be a movement to make robots look different from humans. Yeah. That that some of them will be specifically built so you don't treat them as if they're humanoid, because the humanoid part of them might might make it very difficult for you to use them in certain ways. Of course, if you're worried about robots destroying humanity or abusing us, you'd want them as human as possible so we could hate them just like we can hate other people. <laughs> but but you don't want them so human that they could uh, mix in with us and then um, exactly subvert yeah, us. Exactly. You, you don't think we've gotten nicer over the last fifty years in an interesting way? I used to think that. I think that's one of the things I've learned from Jordan Peterson. Is that he reminds us that that's not necessarily the case. Um, that our, I, I don't, I don't, I really don't. I think our potential for cruelty is um, unchanged. I think uh, the fact that we're living in a liberal democracy, a representative government with a representative government, uh, is an something of an. It's an historical aberration. Uh, it may persist. That would be just grand, but it may not. And um, I'm not. I am not nearly as optimistic or idealistic about that future as I was ten years ago. Huh. So you don't think our psychologies have changed? You think we do we still happen to find ourselves in an environment which rewards certain forms of kindness and good behavior? But if the environment goes away, and it could go away very quickly, we'll be back to where we started from our worst. Sure. Don't tell me you don't believe otherwise. That you believe otherwise. You don't think. You don't think we've. You said our psychology has changed. I'm not sure what that word means, psychology. But our, I don't think our nature's changed one whit 
since, um, say, the gladiators or throwing people to the to the to the lions in ancient Rome, or leaving kids out on the country on the yeah. hillside in Sparta, or um, crusades massacring people, or the death camps of Auschwitz, the Gulag. No, you don't think we're all the same? Haven't changed at all. I, I don't think our natures have changed. We're 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 the products of evolution. We're mammals. We're primates. Yeah. But I do think our psychologies as individuals in our culture have changed. So just to take, you know, um, the attitudes of the people in my community towards sexual minorities, like gay people or trans people, are genuinely different than they used to be when I was a kid. I agree with that. And, and it, but it's not that you can imagine a case where, well, there's just more laws and there's, there's, you know, there's more restrictions. And there, there, I can imagine some cases where people's attitudes are exactly the same, but you're forbidden to do or say different things. But at least in that example, I think the attitudes and feelings are genuinely different in, in a positive way. I think so. I think the tougher case would be uh, minorities, uh, racial, racial differences, religious differences. Um, it really comes back to our, what we started with, right? People of different races are, quote, just like us, I think, more or less. Yeah. Uh, that view was wildly unpopular 100 years ago. <laughs> there, it was believed that they weren't like us. We were better. Whoever we were, pick doesn't matter. Whoever they were doesn't matter. I guess part of my pessimism is the um, the rise of tribalism that we've been talking a lot about on the program yeah. in the last few yeah. episodes and, and recently. And I – the yes, they desire to to dehumanize, to oppress, to um, to see others as not like us is so deeply embedded in us uh, that I think we're capable of great cruelty um, to people we think are on the wrong side of history, the wrong side of. So you know, while there's I don't know. While there's increased tolerance of some types of behaviors, some types of choices, some types of differences between people, I, I also see at the same time. I mean, get Nazis marching in Virginia, in America, I, I, and it's a tiny number. I don't want to be. I'm not paranoid. Yeah. I, 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 but how did that happen? How did that become culturally like? Wow, you know that. And I, I think that's just the. I think that's the. That's the veneer of civilization covering over what I think is is still out there racially, religiously, a lot of lot of lot of hatred inside the human heart, which is a horrible thing to say. I, you know, I, I, at the same time, I, I I took my notes before the show and I'm and I and I wrote down things about how I'm increasingly uh, eager to see people as being inherently good, and and I think on a day to day one on one basis, I think as I've gotten older, I'm I think I'm better at that. I think that's a good yeah. thing. But at the global meta big picture level, I'm not sure we've made any progress. Well, it's probably better to love people and distrust humanity than the other way around. So, <laughs> but, but but I'm I, I mean I see what you're saying, and, and you know everything you you say rings true. But it was a really small number of people, and Nazis have marched in America before it's in true. much much greater number actually. Yeah. In, in World War II, they they filled they filled Central Park and um in Skokie yeah. they, they they marched and then you know the anniversary of the march was was this joke there was like you know 
a dozen losers wandering around aimlessly surrounded by thousands of Antifa members. Yeah, that's, um, true. that's so a good we, point. I, I guess the question is, we are entering, it is impossible to doubt the last few years have been very bad for cosmopolitanism and very good for tribalism. And this is in some sense goes back to the argument I was having last night with my family. And I can say much more, <laughs> much more here. Thank you. We'll just put the um, video up online on that. You don't have to say anything else. <laughs> no, you don't want to see it. Um, um, which, which, is, which is, is what we have now a kind of blip where, where it'll go back to normal and then the next president will be, um, I don't know. Uh, Mainstream. Joe, lower Joe, the, Joe Biden or Jeb yeah, Bush. Lower the flag to half masks, half masks, yeah. say, when half staff when a, when a person of his party dies. Yeah. That's right. Or will the next, you know, president be some, you know, or, or, or will things just get worse? And, 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 and the tribal, the tribal appetite, which definitely exists, will just, will just get more and more play in modern life. And I, I tend to be an optimist. I tend to think this, this is this aberration we're living through now, but we'll know more in five years. Yeah, boy, I'm, I, I'm on the other side of that one. You know, my joke is it's going to be uh, Oprah against Ronda Rousey in 2024. <laughs> that sounds right? right. As opposed to Don't... Mitt Romney against, say, Joe Biden or whatever Joe Biden's equivalent will be in 2024. Well, uh, it's a good don't question. Count out, don't count out Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Yeah, no, he's, he's, he's going to be strong. Yeah. He's going to be strong. Yeah. Anyway, yes. Let's go back to Westworld. What was your um, first point, which we didn't get to, about why um, there's something disturbing about the program? The first point is that the robots are probably sentient. I mean, it's impossible to know. It's the standard, you know, undergraduate dormitory argument at two in the morning. How can I know you're conscious? How can you know that I'm conscious? But these robots are of such sophistication and complexity. It beggars belief that they don't have feelings. Um, and the fact, and, and you could say, well, they aren't, you know, they, they aren't uh, born like we are. They aren't. Uh, human, they aren't made of flesh and bones like we are. But like most cognitive scientists, most psychologists, I would shrug and say it's not clear that that matters. And so, if you have in front of me a machine who begs for mercy, has a conversation, has goals, seems to have goals and desires, I think our very best bet is to say there's somebody home. And if there's somebody home, you then um, shouldn't treat them badly. And I guess what I'm saying is when these people walked onto Westworld and they saw these robots, they knew they were robots, but they, they talked with them. They should have said, I can't harm them because they are, they have, they are conscious. Do you think um, it's wrong to put a dog to sleep that has cancer that you don't want to pay for the chemo? No, I don't think that that's wrong. But that, but that cuts across two different issues. And I don't either, but I... I but I'm not one, sure why when I think about it. <laughs> one issue is that, that the question of killing is somewhat different. I would think that it probably is wrong to let a dog suffer in agony. Yeah, that's a good point. Because, because fixing, just putting the dog to sleep or curing the dog would take up too much time or be an inconvenience to be too expensive. I think that, so I don't think the issue is so much life or death. Um, and I feel this way also regarding the, the, the manufacture of animals for, um, for food. It's not so much the killing, it's the suffering. Yep. And, and there's every indication that those things in Westworld can suffer. I don't agree with you on that. 
okay. at least for now. I'm going to read your quote. Um, you're right. The biggest concern is that we might one day create conscious machines, sentient beings with beliefs, desires, and most morally pressing the capacity to suffer. Nothing seems to be stopping us from doing this. Philosophers and scientists remain uncertain about how consciousness emerges from the material world, but few doubt that it does. This suggests that the creation of conscious machines is possible. I agree with that, but I want to take a twist on it. You want to say something? No, no. Um, so I, I, I've been thinking about this for a little while. I don't know if I have anything interesting to say, but uh, I, was, I was stimulated by an insight of Harry Frankfurt about what makes us different from animals. Uh, his test is, can it have desires about its desires? So my example of that is, could a smart vacuum cleaner feel sadness at not having a chance at being a driverless car? <laughs> and I, I don't. I think the answer to that is no. Um, I don't think it would feel sadness. Um, I, I, you know, I uh, had a guest on the show, Pedro Domingos, talking about artificial intelligence and machine learning, and he has this beautiful parable of a of a robot growing up alongside you experiencing taking in all the data that you're taking in as a child as an infant and processing it with its own brain and in theory it could have consciousness um and my question would be if you gave it if you showed it at 40 years old the teddy bear that it that you went to bed with every night would it feel nostalgia and what argument is well of course it would it would have the same brain that you had it would have the same emotional response, and I, I don't think that's obviously true. I just don't see it. So what's what's the stopping point for you? Why do you think that these capacities you're pointing out, which are sophisticated capacities, somehow have to be embedded in flesh and can't be part of a machine? I guess because fundamentally, it's an interesting. I don't. It's just an intuition, obviously. And yeah. It's it could be. Uh, Wrong for many reasons, one of which is uh, religious feelings of something about a soul. Um, it, it seems to me that a – well, not seems to me. A brain is not a computer. So the question is, okay, true, but can we comp- create a machine that will exactly mimic a brain? And I, it's theoretically possible. Well, it, I guess – Although many – some have suggested it's not, n- not on religious grounds, that the material complexity of it is, is, the, is the issue. The way the brain is grown, it, it just can't be mimicked literally. But maybe mm-hmm. it could be, and I guess if it could be, it's, it's, it's hard for me to understand, just maybe my human limitation, how a machine could have feelings. And the answer, I guess, is, well, but all those feelings you think you have aren't really feelings. They're just neurons firing, and I, I, don't, I guess that's possible. I guess I, I'd say two things. One thing is I also find it very hard to understand how a machine, uh, you know, wires and, and, you know, silicone and so on could have feelings. <laughs> I find it equally hard to imagine how a, a lump of flesh and meat, you know, above my shoulders can have feelings either. Apparently it does. No, it's the fundamental mystery. And I, you know, um, Ian McGilchrist on this program in his book, uh, The Master and His Emissary, uh, you know, basically says consciousness is the one thing we have trouble having consciousness about and that any theory of how it emerges from the brain is almost certainly wrong. <laughs> uh, but 
maybe someday they'll solve philosophers and scientists, as you suggest, will solve this problem. Uh, you know, many have suggested David Chalmers, uh, mm-hmm. most publicly that, that I know of, that you know our current our whole theory of science has to be wrong and reevaluated because if it can't explain consciousness, which it doesn't seem to be able to, uh, that's very dissatisfying. Something's fundamentally wrong with it. I would agree with that, but these are early days. I guess I would also say is one way to build a sentient robot is to perfectly duplicate a brain. And, you know, if you perfectly duplicate a brain, then it's hard to see why that wouldn't count as, as fully sentient. But it's not the only way. Um, I would imagine, I could imagine there may be many ways to construct intelligence and consciousness. Um, so most, you know, the, the everyday robots we live in are not duplicates of, of brains. They work yep. in very different ways. Yep. And, and the machines in Westworld um, may be, there may be many routes to consciousness. I don't have any problems to take it out of the AI realm to imagine that in another planet there could be conscious beings that are evolved on a very different planet than ours. Yeah, that's true. You sound skeptical. No, 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 no. I'm just thinking about it a lot. I'm not skeptical at all. I, I really don't mean to be. I find that really interesting. I don't um, – I, I, you know, I think I, it's kind of the Ian McGorker's point. I don't think my consciousness is capable of absorbing that that thought experiment very effectively, Right how those different consciousnesses would emerge without it with a through a different process. I, I guess part of what I'm reacting to is that, you know, the Turing test. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm on a, I'm talking to this robot or this seemingly human thing. I don't know if it's a human or a robot and I insult it. Uh, and, um, you know, maybe it's my mechanical spouse, my robot spouse at the front desk, and I roll my eyes at the front <laughs> desk, and the mechanical spouse knows to respond as a human would, and says, and starts crying. You've you've hurt my you've hurt my feelings, yeah. and starts to cry, um, and has a system built in to replenish tears, of course, mm-hmm. and to have them come out in a way that reminds me of humans, and. Um, I understand that I'm going to feel remorse if I'm a good person, that I've hurt the robot's feelings, just like I am sympathetic to the cartoon character with the small nose because it taps into my human uh, DNA that says small creatures with flat noses are like infants. And I I look at them and they have big eyes and oversized eyes. I'm going to respond to that emotionally. But I re- realize in the case of the cartoon that it's just a cartoon. Yeah. And I'm not – Am I? should I really feel bad about that That robot spouse where I rolled my eyes? So what you're saying, going back to West – re- Are they really sad? That's the question. That's the fundamental question, right? Right. And if I cause pain, it, suffering. Yeah. And if it's – I guess – I guess I'd first say – we can never know at a certain level, just like you could never know that for your real spouse. Yeah, for Descartes. It's, I mean, that's a big problem. <laughs> right. It's possible, it's possible that, that I'm the only conscious person around. Yep. And, you know, um, it's not possible that you are because I know I am. But, um, but, but the second thing is I think in, in the real world, how you would respond would depend on the complexity of it. If it's, if it's a sort of Robbie the robot looking machine – and it says, I am sad, and tears <laughs> sprout out, and then it spins around a bit, you'd say, well, it's just a toy. And you got to fill up the, the tear cartridge. you got to replace right, the tear right. cartridge that I'm night. I'm imagining a little tin can <laughs> yeah. and everything. Uh, but, 
But if it looks like Sandy Newton from Westworld and and starts arguing with you, and it may be irresistible, you may have no choice but to view it as as a person. Now, it's possible you would say that's your den under grips a very powerful illusion. Yeah, I don't know. Um, just in some way, like like you know, you see images on a TV screen. And you immediately say, oh, there's a person and there's a car and there's a house. But you know, it's just images on a 2D screen. But you cry but, anyway. I but you cry, cry anyway at, the, at, the, at, at Love Actually in, in more than one place. And I know that, right. that they're just actors pretending. That's right. That's right. And I would think, I would bet that if you spent an hour with one of the Westworld characters, the Sandy Newton character, and then left – and then they said, okay, well, we're going to chop her up into small bits to, you know, to, to reconstruct her. You would say, no, you shouldn't. That's murder. I don't think so. I, I think it would bother me deep. I think I'd, I, I would howl when, I, when the axe yeah. fell. I think I would. But that's an illusion too. That, that would be a – that bit of information would misinform you about what I really think because that's not – you're tapping yeah. into my deepest, deepest – Un, uncontrolled responses. So I'm not asking how you'd react if you had to see the axe fall. I'm asking how we'd react if she left and then you were asked, is that a person? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. Apparently, apparently in, the t- in the TV show, people do not have that reaction. People are entirely comfortable taking these sentient humanoid things and treating them in all sorts of terrible ways, both face to face, but also at a distance. They they are, they feel no compulsion to say, "Oh my God, they're people." I mean, the characters on the show, the characters, yeah. the characters. That's right. Well, that makes I a good the, show. I think the viewers see it very differently. One of the one of the ironies of the show, which is built into the show, is you very quickly take the side of the robots, yeah, and begin to uh, be repelled by the people. Yeah. Oh, it's a genius. It's a genius idea for sure. It is. I just don't. I don't. You know. I think all of these are. Um, well, they're they're wonderful thought experiments, which will we'll come full circle with that. They're wonderful thought experiments that force us to think about our own humanity and and what makes what makes moral behavior, uh, how we should treat the people around us. Absolutely. My guest today has been Paul Bloom. Paul, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a blast. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday. <laughs>